Hi everyone, welcome to another episode of TMX Presents, the podcast. My name is George Khalife, Vice President of US Capital Formation, and today I'm joined by Ronan Levy, founder and executive chairman of Field Trip Health, a company that aims to redefine mental health and well-being through groundbreaking work in psychedelics and psychedelic enhanced psychotherapy. With Field Trip Health Centers opening across North America, drug development and advanced research on plant-based psychedelics through field trip discovery, the focus is really on helping people heal and heighten engagement with the world. Alrighty, Ronan, appreciate you for doing this. Thanks for jumping on. Yeah, I was watching a lot of you know interviews that you've done, as I mentioned before we started recording. And I think what stood out to me the most is you spent more than 15 years, I should say, of really trying to enhance the personal quality of your life, whether it's been through coaching, meditation, therapy, self-exploration. You've had this predisposed focus on figuring out what the utility of therapy is, but also trying to change the stigma of holistic medicine. And I think what stood out to me the most is how does Ronan Levy go from being a corporate lawyer, specifically in the media business, to entering the cannabis space and then psychedelics? You know, at one point in my career, I think I was a first or second year lawyer, I took a stand-up comedy class and I wasn't very good at it, but the teacher helped me tell a joke, which was like any self-respecting lawyer, I had no respect for myself. And that's kind of how this evolution started. Truthfully, I was always predisposed to be a little bit contrarian and buck the status quo since a young age. And so my path into the legal profession to start was mostly driven by one errant comment as being a young Jewish boy growing up in Hamilton saying like, oh, I think it'd be cool to be a lawyer and never being allowed to forget that thanks to my mom. That kind of drove me towards the profession of law. But as soon as I got into it, I realized it was not something that I was well suited for in many respects. And so even though I went to law school and articled at Blake's and, and worked in private practice and corporate securities for a couple of years, I was always looking to progressively shift towards more business-oriented opportunities. And so I left Blake's and went to BioVail. I left BioVail and went to CTV Globe Media, which is now Bell Media, which was a, an amazing experience because I got to live out my childhood fantasies of hanging out with rock stars because I got to work primarily with Much Music and MTV in that role. Went into the world of online dating as a lawyer, as a general counsel, and that's where I really got to step much more into a business-minded lawyer and understand risk paradigms and where you can push the envelope and where you don't, particularly as it comes to operating a startup. And after I left that, I started doing freelance legal work as I started my first business which eventually led to an introduction to the people who would become my business partners in the cannabis industry and actually in the psychedelics industry. I had been freelancing. They had just sold a business. We're looking to do something new. I did some legal work for them. We jammed on a few startup ideas. Cannabis happened to be one of them. At that point, they were a little bit Joseph and Hanan, my business partner still to this day, were a little bit reticent being like, cannabis seems so sketchy. It was 2013, medical cannabis hadn't really become a thing yet, but the regulations were changing to enable it. And 
through my various career steps, which I refer to as my descent into hell from corporate law, <laughs> into pharmaceutical law, into media law, into online dating. And in between, I opened up a cash for gold store. I was like, well, this is going to be the cleanest business I ever get into these days. So cannabis seems great. So after cajoling them for a while, we got together and we started Canadian Cannabis Clinics, which grew to become the largest network of cannabis specialized medical clinics in Canada. And what that experience opened me up to was actually really about plant-based medicine. I know that's a term and jargon that gets thrown around these days, and it's one I don't particularly like, but I think it's the easiest to use for this conversation, which was through Canadian Cannabis Clinics, all three of us as co-founders kind of looked at cannabis a little bit naively being like, yeah, there may be some therapeutic benefit, but philosophically, you know, if it keeps people out of jail, that's probably a good enough reason to build this business. But what we saw was that cannabis medicine really changed the quality of life for the patients that we worked with. It was remarkably eye-opening. And that really caused me to start questioning some fundamentally held beliefs that I had about cannabis and other plant medicines that people talked about including psychedelics. So the psychedelic conversation didn't come around for a few years. That was in 2018 after we sold Canadian cannabis clinics to Aurora Cannabis and we're looking for the next opportunity of something to work on. And we just happened to have an errant conversation about psilocybin with someone who was looking to raise money for a startup that was doing clinical research on psilocybin. I was like, psilocybin's a thing? And during that conversation, we learned all about the research that was happening. And for me, the thing, and this ties back to your initial comment, the thing that really struck me was when the person we were speaking to said that a single psilocybin-assisted therapy experience is like 10 years of therapy in an afternoon. And I was like, even if that's a gross exaggeration, even if it's twice as good as therapy or three times as good as therapy or one and a half times as good as therapy... When I look at the state of the world, there's probably nothing we need more right now than having people start to deal with their mental and emotional health. And if psychedelics are the platform that can enable that, then that's something I could get behind. And really, that's what embarked us on our, our now three and a half year journey into psychedelics. Before I get going, for all the lawyers out there listening and who are also aspiring to be entrepreneurs, I hope this is a beacon of inspiration. <laughs> I feel like, to your point earlier, it's seldom that the two cross, at least in this sort of capacity. I did just want to ask before we segue really quickly, what do you think from your legal background helped you the most in the industries that you serve right now? So your previous comments about all the lawyers listening, I'm a big believer that in the future, most of the functions that are currently served by lawyers will be dealt with through AIs, computers, and algorithms. Like if it's logic driven, then computers can do it better than humans at some point in the not too distant future. So the role of the lawyer is not going to be drafting in the work that most lawyers do presently. It's really going to be about understanding risk paradigms. And the best lawyers are not going to be the ones that are constantly seeking to eliminate risk but the ones that are trying to proactively encourage the optimal amount of risk taking. And so for all the lawyers listening out there, my advice to you is stop thinking about worst case scenarios. You should have an understanding of them, but start understanding what the best case scenarios are for taking risks and, and encourage that kind of behavior. I think that's going to become the most important skill. And that's certainly what I learned through my experiences. You know, I would sit down with clients and I do have simple math analysis being like, okay, what's the cost of this going wrong? And they'd put a number on it, like $5 million. And I'd be like, okay, what are the odds that this thing happens? And they'd put in a 
fraction on it. One in 10. Okay. Now, what are the odds that if the one in 10 chances it goes wrong, it's actually your fault? And you divide that by another 10. And you keep doing that analysis and analysis all the way down. And you're like, okay, so this point we're spending thousands of dollars negotiating over is actually worth $5 on a rational expectations basis. Are you sure you want to keep fighting about this? And they'd inevitably say no. And I'd be like, that's the right decision. Let's move on. And that's how I really encourage people to look at the profession of law. And by learning to take those risks, it makes it an easy stepping stone to then make investment decisions and startup decisions if you're keen to move over to the other side. Yeah, certainly. And and obviously it helps you playing in industries that are and continue to look at different ways of being regulated, right? I mean, you look at what's happening to cannabis and what continues to happen to cannabis, not just in Canada, but now in the US and around the world. I did just want to start because I think for the past couple of years, at least folks have, whether you're on the investment side or just maybe a consumer recreationally, I think they've become a little bit more educated when it comes to cannabis, maybe versus psychedelics. But curious as someone who's been on both sides of the coin here, what are some of the similarities with those two different hats? And what are some of the differences that you see between cannabis and psychedelics? From a superficial perspective, cannabis and psychedelics seem very similar, being these drugs or these medicines, choose your term of arts, having been prohibited, made illegal, stigmatized, a whole war on drugs designed to provide misinformation. And I'm not a conspiracy theorist, but when you actually look into the war on drugs, it was just rife with misinformation to discourage people from taking them. And there's even documents and interviews from people in the Nixon administration admitting that they made up the war on drugs as a political tool to subjugate the counterculture revolution and and the black community and all that kind of stuff. So on that superficial level, you're like, oh, cannabis and psychedelics, they're kind of hand in hand and they're both at least as pertains to maybe psilocybin, plant-based medicines, natural products, right? So they have those kind of similarities, which is pretty correct. The other kind of similarity from a business perspective is over the last 10 or 15 years, there was essentially zero platform that these industries really had to be built from the ground up in terms of building the clinical infrastructure, in terms of building the cultivation and production infrastructure, in terms of distribution, all of that kind of stuff. And, and so those are the high-level comparisons That's kind of where the similarities end. What's really different about psychedelics versus cannabis is psychedelics are going to emerge as a services-based industry. You know, we see it already in the language that's happening in the state of Oregon where they passed Measure 109 to create the first legal psilocybin industry. They don't talk about it as psilocybin. They talk about it as psilocybin services. And what's being authorized is that people can go to a licensed clinical environment with a licensed clinician and have them oversee a psilocybin experience in that location. It is a service that you experience. Cannabis, on the other hand, is a product. You get a prescription, you get a medical authorization, or depending on the jurisdiction you're in, you walk into a dispensary, you buy the product, you take it home, you self-administer, and and away you go. And that's the real difference. The other fundamental difference when we're talking both from a business perspective as well as a medical or therapeutic perspective is cannabis by and large is targeted towards symptom relief. It doesn't eliminate your back pain, but it provides relief from your back pain for a little while. It doesn't cure the epilepsy that people have, but it prevents seizures to quite an extensive degree. Psychedelic therapies, on the other hand, seem to be much more getting at the causative nature of a lot of our mental health challenges. It's like for most people experiencing depression, anxiety, PTSD, 
any number of mental health conditions, there usually is some sort of single or multiple instances of events that led people down a conscious and subconscious path that led to their mental health challenges. And psychedelics seem to have the capacity to help people unwind that, get at that initial trauma, that initial heartbreak, help you move past it in a way that it no longer manifests itself in your life to this day. So, you know, if you've had like a terrible breakup and you're like, I don't know if I can get into another relationship again as a very simple example, it's like it can help you actually get over that heartbreak on a much faster basis than years and years and years of therapy so people can be more present or get into a relationship or whatever kind of restrictions we impose on ourselves, whether it's a lack of self-worth. I know I suffered and probably just about every lawyer I went to suffered school with <laughs> suffered from imposter syndrome, which is like the sense you're not actually good enough, but somehow you've fallen through the cracks. It's like these are all mental and emotional challenges that we deal with. And I can talk about the theories around why psychedelic therapies seem to be so effective, but if you can help people get at those things, if you can help people be more compassionate to themselves, more compassionate to others, more optimistic, then I think it can do a world of good for the entire planet, not just those suffering with mental health conditions, but that's a bit of a deeper conversation. Well, I appreciate the overview of how they're different to how they're similar. And I start there because, as I mentioned, I think most people are probably more familiar with cannabis and at this point are gradually becoming more familiar with psychedelics, at least if not from a headline perspective, maybe sort of digging deeper on listening to podcasts like this one and maybe from other notable influencers like a Tim Ferriss, a Peter Thiel, etc. So to summarize, I think from what you're saying, really, it comes down to two things in terms of how they're different. You categorize it as cannabis being a product right? One that's at this point consumed recreationally, the other being service and experience. Because in many cases, if administered correctly, it's done in a professional setting, right? One that's obviously inviting, of course, but it has to be also accompanied with psychotherapy. So it's this long-term view of not just bandaging a problem, but trying to find a solution that sort of alleviates pain. Alleviates pain or actually causes the kind of healing, like to use an analogy, it's like your bones mend after a broken arm. And even though it sounds trite, your heart can heal after a broken heart, whether that's a relationship or a traumatic event or, or whatever it may be. And psychedelic therapies seem to accelerate the healing. You can get there. You know, the easiest way to think about that is you can do this through conventional therapy techniques. You know, a lot of the benefits we get from psychedelic therapies can be achieved through conventional therapy approaches, cognitive behavioral therapy, talk therapy, all that kind of stuff. You just get there much faster with psychedelic assisted therapies. It's like going to the gym. You can go to the gym and work out by yourself and you're going to make some progress and that's great. But if you go to the gym and work out with a trainer and eat properly, you're going to make a lot more progress associated with it. And so psilocybin or, or psychedelics tend to be the trainer that just helps you get to the place you want to go a little bit faster. Yeah, because that was going to be one of my questions that I wanted to bring up because I know I'm certain folks listening, whether to this one or to any other podcast, it's like this burning thing that's always on their mind of, you know, this rebuttal of, well, why can't we get there naturally? You know, like, why do you need sort of this supplement to help you get there? And I'm glad you addressed that, right? It's like, even though you might have this capacity, sometimes you also might be deficient. I mean, I don't know if this is a proper analogy, but think of it also like vitamins. I mean, why do individuals sort of supplement on vitamin D as an example? Well, certainly you might be deficient if you live in a place like Canada, right? Yeah. 
Similarly, it's like you can choose to let your natural immunity fight off an infection. Mm. You can do that. But I think most people are happy taking antibiotics to make sure the infection doesn't get worse. And that's like artificial means. Like the antibiotics that we take are not necessarily naturally occurring products. I see it very much like vitamin D or an antibiotic. We take medicine all the time. Do we need to? No, you know, that's entirely within the choice of your domain as a conscious, like independent agent. But should you? Probably good advice a lot of the time. So before we continue digging deeper, I did want to pause here and just set the stage for everyone listening and really help sort of dispel what psychedelics are. Now, as we've already talked about, there are common ones we often hear, ketamine, psilocybin. But I did want to sort of dispel just from the top first, what are psychedelics? Two, which ones do you personally focus on and why? Sure. Interestingly, the definition of what is a psychedelic is not as cut and dry as you might think. You know, at Field Trip, we've taken the philosophy that a psychedelic is anything that helps quiet the ego or, you know, the subconscious mind or the conscious mind a little bit. And so things that kind of reside in your subconscious mind can come forward, just like you try to get to through meditation. So that can be meditation, that can be breath work, that can be ketamine, that can be psilocybin, that can be MDMA. It's a whole number of different options that just help us become a little bit more aware of our conscious and subconscious minds and how they interact and operate. On a more biological or chemical basis, there's typically considered two classes of what we think about psychedelics, tryptamines and phenethylamines. Tryptamines are things like psilocybin, LSD, you might have heard of ayahuasca, the active ingredient in ayahuasca is DMT, which is something that our bodies naturally synthesize and occurs in our bodies naturally. 5-MeO-DMT is something that people may have heard of. Those are the tryptamines. They're all built off the DMT molecule and are all different kind of formulations of the DMT molecule. On the other side, there's molecules known as phenethylamines. The most commonly known probably is MDMA or more commonly known on the street as ecstasy, mm-hmm. peyote, San Pedro, which has mescaline in it, is a phenethylamine, and there's a whole host of them. And those are kind of the two buckets of psychedelics. Ketamine isn't classically bucketed into either of those two branches of psychedelics, but the experience on ketamine in many ways mirrors certain psychedelics and offers a very psychedelic-like experience because people do experience the psychotropic trip that happens with all of these molecules while using a sub-anesthetic dose of ketamine. And so that's why ketamine is part of this conversation as well. And to touch on some of the evidence that we're seeing around this and why there's so much excitement around psychedelics, for example, with MDMA-assisted therapy, an organization, a nonprofit in the U.S. called MAPS, the Multidisciplinary Association for Psychedelic Studies, is currently, just actually last week, completed enrollment in the second arm of their phase three clinical study under the FDA auspices. By the way, the FDA actually granted breakthrough therapy designation to MDMA-assisted therapy. So not only is it not as stigmatized as once thought, the FDA has actually declared it a trial of promise that is meeting a significant unmet need. And in the the first arm of the phase three clinical trial conducted by MAPS, they found that the participants who underwent two or three MDMA-assisted therapy sessions in the clinical trial who had suffered with chronic severe PTSD for about 17 years on average, 70% of them were effectively cured of PTSD, meaning they no longer met the DSM criteria of being a PTSD patient any longer. 
If you compare that to the standard of care that most physicians and psychiatrists hope to achieve with conventional approaches, which is a 30% improvement in symptoms versus a 70% cure rate, you can understand how these therapies are orders of magnitude more effective than current treatment options. See the same thing with psilocybin, where there are some clinical studies that suggest the antidepressant effects of a single psilocybin-assisted therapy session can last for five years. With ketamine, which is what we focus on primarily at Field Trip, the research was so promising that Dr. Tom Insull, who used to be the director of the National Institute of Mental Health in the United States, declared that ketamine is the single most important development in depression treatment in the last 50 years. So we're talking about incredible efficacy profiles and incredible safety profiles too. And that MDMA-assisted therapy trial where there's a 70% cure rate, there wasn't a single severe adverse event reported. So all the things that we were taught in high school that you probably learned in high school and I was taught in high school about the danger of psychedelics, it's not that they're not potentially dangerous. Everything is potentially dangerous if used inappropriately. But when used in proper clinical settings with proper support, these therapies are incredibly safe and orders of magnitude more effective than anything we've got in our mental health arsenal right now from a medical perspective. Yeah, I mean, that's incredible, especially to hear some of the research that's that long lasting. What I did want to touch on is sort of what you pointed to towards the end, which is do you think that the recreational aspect of some of these drugs, be it psychedelics or cannabis, in the context of when it's misused, the visual in a lot of people's mind is like maybe a music festival, right? But you sort of see the differences in nature, right? Like you often hear about psychedelics being used, right? Same drug, but could have very, very different outcomes versus when it's assisted and done in a professional manner, what the benefits could be. My question there is, do you think that the recreational misuse could have trickling negative connotations into the professional world? I don't think so. I mean, I think by and large, the anecdotes we hear about the dangers of misuse are probably overblown. And that even in the recreational context, the vast majority of people are having positive constructive experiences, even if that means taking MDMA and dancing you know, your heart out at a rave. Most of the research coming out right now is that the medical issues that come up from raves and MDMA is not actually the MDMA. It's most people are just super dehydrated, not actually a problem with the drug. And so, A, I mean, there's obviously a risk that we could have the same backlash that happened in the 1960s. But I do genuinely believe that the world has changed, that most people have declared that the war on drugs has not been a success after Joe Biden got elected in November of last year. And my favorite meme going around was the one that said, congratulations to the drugs for winning the war on drugs. And I really do believe, outside of the humor of that, that we recognize that prohibition of drugs has not been effective. So probably smarter to regulate and educate than prohibit. And so even if there are some challenging experiences that create some skepticism amongst the general public, I don't think the direction of policy reform is going to change that much. Yeah, and assumingly too, just thinking about this now, the dissemination of information is so much easier, right? Yeah. Like even through the use of social media, if something bad happens, like in the case of being dehydrated, I'm sure that would circulate much more nowadays, or you can also just self-educate on what some of those red flags and the parameters are when you want to recreationally use. 
I'm assuming that helps, right? Absolutely. That's one of the big factors, actually, the internet and like the ability of people to find like-minded people is one of the reasons that I don't think this box is ever going to be closed, right? I think there's just too much momentum. I think there's too much interest. I think there's too much need. And the science backs it up by and large. So I'm quite confident we won't see a rehash of the 1960s. Understood. So we covered what psychedelics are from sort of a, an overview perspective, what some of the other threads could be like ketamine, psilocybin. We talked about the differences between psychedelics and cannabis, some of the benefits, as well as maybe the misunderstandings or the connotations that are attached to it. I did want to talk about legalization. Mm-hmm. You know, again, more notably, cannabis was widely known to a lot of folks, especially because it was, it was legalized in Canada still on the preface here in the US, but curious, can you provide everyone an update on what's happening in terms of the legalization of psychedelics from your vantage point being so close to the industry? Sure. So we should distinguish that there's two forms of legalization that I think are on the cusp of happening. The first one is regulated access as a medicine, which is the clinical trials with MDMA, the ones with psilocybin, and as well as the next generation psychedelic compounds, we're very close to seeing the first approvals come through. MAPS, the organization running the MDMA-assisted therapy trials, expects to, they just closed enrollment on their second arm of the phase three, as mentioned, and they expect to have top-line readout sometime early next year. And so they could get FDA approval to start marketing MDMA-assisted therapy as a treatment for PTSD as soon as next year. So we're probably a year or less away from legal access for those who have PTSD, to MDMA-assisted therapy. So that's one path. Like I said, MDMA-assisted therapy probably next year. Psilocybin-assisted therapy is likely on track for approval in 2025, 2026, assuming that the research continues to show such promising results. So that's one path to legalization. There's another path that's happening as well, which is more of a wellness-based access program. And the first instance of that happened in the state of Oregon. In the last U.S. election, the citizens of the state of Oregon passed Measure 109. Measure 109 creates the first legal market for psilocybin services. And so in that paradigm, it's not a medicine because it's not being prescribed to treat a specific mental health indication. It's something that's accessible, kind of like cannabis in a recreational environment, but the difference being you have to go to a licensed service provider. So it's not just a product, it's a service. I anticipate that we'll see one or two more states in the U.S. move to create similar programs to Oregon this coming November, California, Washington, Colorado. There are initiatives underway in all of those states, and a number of states have actually independently on a legislative basis started proposals and discussions around different kind of access programs as well. So I think you'll see, using a comparison to cannabis, GH Pharma had Apodilex approved, which was a blend of THC and CBD as a medicine for the treatment of Dravet syndrome and epilepsy. And then you had all the medical cannabis programs emerge as well. So you had the medical as well as the wellness operating in parallel. And I think you're going to see that in psychedelics as well, which you'll have the approved medicines like MDMA and psilocybin and with field trip, we have FT-104, which we are hoping for approval around 2026, 2027, and one side, and then a very parallel system, which is not specifically medical, operating in parallel. My guess is you'll see before the end of the 2020s, very similar kind of reach as we see with cannabis, which you know in Canada, I suspect we'll see fully regulated access sometime over the next couple of years. In the US, you'll probably see 
two-thirds of Americans with some sort of legal access to psychedelic therapies, whether in a purely medical environment or some sort of wellness program. Noted. One more before we jump into the capital market side really quickly, but for the, and I don't love this phrase, but for the average Joe or average Sarah, right? Like in the relation to obviously psychedelics, if they're wondering who is this best suited for, who would make an ideal candidate? Like, do I need to show sort of maybe symptoms of potentially clinical depression or anxiety for me to look at a response? Or can I be maybe proactive even when things seemingly are going well, but I just maybe want to enhance the personal quality of my life? Who would you advise this for? I'm a big believer that just as anybody can benefit from conventional therapy, I believe that just about anybody can benefit from psychedelic assisted therapy. That being said, because the only legal option in North America right now is ketamine, and ketamine is a prescribed medication for which there needs to be medical justification to be prescribing it, I would say that ketamine-assisted therapy is best suited for people who have been diagnosed with depression or anxiety or going through you know, a period of intense situational stress, whether that's divorce or loss of a job or anything along those lines where, you know, there could be a significant period of adjustment. Our medical advisors and clinicians at Field Trip generally feel comfortable prescribing to people in those categories. There are some clear contraindications, ketamine addiction, allergy to ketamine, which is possible if you're pregnant or nursing. If you have a history of schizophrenia or psychosis, generally, those are absolute contraindications. But beyond that, I guess elevated high blood pressure can also be a contraindication as well. But beyond that, if there's medical justification, then I think these therapies can help a lot of people. What we're seeing at Field Trip, we have 12 locations across North America and Europe, eight in the States, three in Canada, and one in the Netherlands. And the average person who comes through field trip and goes through our protocol, which is usually four to six ketamine sessions interspersed with what we call integration sessions, where you take the insight and awareness from the experiences and really try to turn them into action and take advantage of the period of neuroplasticity that happens after a psychedelic experience. We're seeing the average person's depression symptoms and anxiety symptoms go from severe to mild and those benefits are being sustained for, on average, 120 days or longer. And even though it's not apples to apples comparisons, the data and the results that we're showing at Field Trip, I would argue, make the protocol that we're using right now the single most effective depression and anxiety treatment option out there. I'm not familiar with any treatment option that provides such sustained and lasting benefits to people. And for anyone who's listening who may be struggling, the results that can be generated that you can experience are actually fantastic and may quite literally be unachievable anywhere else right now. Shout out to the Chicago clinic as well. I think we we're in the same area, if I'm not mistaken. I live in the River North area. So yeah. I think that's where that right in Chicago. That's exactly nice. where we are. Yeah. Yeah. I'm like, it's one of our clients, one of our issuers. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Always get pumped. Speaking of being an issuer, of course, and being home to TSX, but also being dual listed on NASDAQ, right under the ticker FTRP. What I did want to ask is like, how have the public markets benefited the psychedelic industry, specifically from a point of growth, right? Whether it's raising capital, whether it's making acquisitions, what in your mind has lended well to the strategy of being a public company in the psychedelics industry? Notwithstanding the absolute shellacking that all all yes. stocks, but particularly bio stocks, biotech stocks are taking these days. 
amidst the exciting environment is the way <laughs> yes. I put it. <laughs> yes. Volatility is fun, right? That's what makes roller coasters fun. When I was part of the cannabis industry, I remember talking to Bruce Linton, who was one of the founders of Canopy Growth, and the rationale for taking Canopy public, which was twofold. One was certainly access to lower cost capital through the public markets, especially for a high growth company that wasn't necessarily well suited for conventional venture capital or private equity investing. So it definitely lowers the cost of capital and has certainly lowered the cost of capital for us. So that's obviously a significant aspect of it. But secondly, and maybe equally, if not as important, is the fact that we're still working to overcome 60 years of misinformation and stigma and a legacy war on drugs. And so having the platform that a publicly traded company gets by virtue of being publicly traded, as well as the credibility that comes from going through the scrutiny of applying to the TSX and or NASDAQ and still being approved to trade gives us a level of credibility that I don't think could be achieved through any other means. I think capital markets being publicly traded has been pivotal to, I won't say the growth, but the acceleration of growth in in the psychedelic space and and awareness of psychedelic therapies. How have you navigated investor expectations about the longer term view that is required, you know, in a space closely tied to biotech, right? There is an element of drug discovery. It's not just a consumer based recreational product. I'm a big believer that investing in psychedelic drug development, especially for novel and differentiated molecules where IP is clearly well defined, it's the best biotech investment you could possibly make simply because When you're thinking about psychedelic medicines, we've got decades, if not eons of data of their historic ceremonial spiritual use, establishing efficacy and safety, you know, to a pretty good degree, which when you think about conventional biotech or pharma investing are the two biggest risks. Does it work and is it safe? With most psychedelics, you know, it works to some degree, you know, it's safe to some degree. So you've already de-risked your investment strategy substantially. And so from that paradigm of biotech investing, it's an easy choice. And then The next kind of consideration that, again, makes it an easy choice in my mind is if anyone still questioned whether we have a mental health crisis before COVID, I'm sure there's no doubt now that we have an ongoing and intensifying mental health crisis. And there are no promising treatment options emerging except for psychedelics and psychoplastogens. And so if you think there's an opportunity to invest in the future of mental health care, again, psychedelics and psychedelic therapies are a very, very smart investment thesis in my mind. There are some challenges without doubt, which is because you need new clinical infrastructure, which is one of the reasons that Field Trip Health exists. There, You still need to build up infrastructure to commercialize it. But what I'm seeing more and more is that everybody who's been touched by a psychedelic therapy experience becomes an evangelist for psychedelic therapies. And so it's got an inherent virality built into it. It's viral by nature that people have positive experiences and then they want to share those experiences with other people. And I very much see psychedelic therapies becoming the the dominant form of mental health care and psychiatry in the not too distant future because of all of these factors. Well, that's a good point to end on and definitely appreciate your time, Ronan. Thanks for doing this, man. It's my pleasure. Thank you for the opportunity to have this conversation. Thank you for listening to TMX Presents, the podcast. We hope you're enjoying the series. And thank you to Ronan Levy and the Field Trip Health team for joining us. For more information, 
visit us.tsx.com. And for more insights from capital markets leaders, visit tmx.com forward slash POV. Mm-hmm.